Hey, pull up a chair. Tax on Tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. I am greeted with a hostile press, the likes of which no president has ever seen. Uh, the closest would be that gentleman right up there. They always said Lincoln. Nobody got treated worse than Lincoln. I believe I am treated worse. You're there. You see those press conferences. They come at me with questions that are disgraceful, to be honest, disgraceful. Their manner of presentation and their words. And I feel that if I was kind to them, I'd be, I'd be walked off the stage. I mean... Well, we're here today on a very somber edition of Hacks on Tap as a grateful nation mourns the suffering that our great President Trump suffers akin only to the great Abe Lincoln. So uh, I know I know we all join him in those feelings, Hacks. I, for one, am, am heartbroken at the heart. Tra- I hear the meatloaf was cold the other day in the White House, too. So <laughs> the president's suffering, it never ends. My favorite uh, Twitter uh, tweet on this came from uh, the journalist Thor Benson who uh, heard that, and he sent out a tweet saying, Lincoln, who, you know, because he was right at the foot of the statue there, he said, Lincoln then stood up and yelled, I got shot in the fucking head. <laughs> it kind of put everything in perspective there. Yes. You know, that, yes. that we, let, let us bring in, uh, we have had two of the uh, uh, lead players in the circus from Showtime, uh, and now, you know, you have to have a three rings for a circus. And so we had to get Alex Wagner, our old buddy, to come and join us uh, today. And now, not only are you doing that and hanging out with those characters, uh, but you're also doing a great new podcast on Crooked Media called Six Feet Apart. So uh, tell us about that and welcome. Guys, I'm so honored to be here. I've been spending a lot of time in isolation wondering where my invitation to come on to Hacks on Tap has been, and finally, we Mike never should have mailed it. it. I told Murphy, I said, "Don't yeah. mail the invitation." Well, I Let's don't. Just... I don't trust this interweb with Putin and everything. <laughs> but sure? we wanted to finish big. We wanted to save the best for last. <laughs> That's so what I figured. It's great to have you on, Alex. America wasn't ready until this moment of desperation and so- and and solitude for for Alex Wagner on Hacks on Tap. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for um, having me on. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. The podcast that you mentioned, Axe, is um, a harebrained idea I had at the start of this pandemic when, you know, I think we've all been digesting a steady stream of information, um, you know, political in terms of how the president is handling this or not, how governors are handling it. And then we've all become sort of armchair epidemiologists looking at curves and talking about infection rates and vaccine development. But it occurred to me that we weren't really in touch with the stories of the pandemic in terms of the emotional, social, cultural impact it's having on every sector of American society. So the focus of the podcast is talking to everybody from athletes, Olympians, baseball players, basketball players who are sidelined and benched through this and how they're staying in shape and staying mentally aware and on top of their game to talking to undertakers and rabbis and uh, prostitutes and I mean anyone that you can think of that has been touched by this whose work has been affected whose emotional health has been impacted it's a series of you know interviews firsthand interviews with people in the middle of an incredible like incredible seismic moment in American history yeah 
We talk about prostitution in another form here all the time on, <laughs> on Hacks on Tap. Well, thank you for joining us. So shall we start with the, I guess we kind of have to, the Trump update. We had the big mm-hmm. town hall on Fox on the Lincoln Memorial. I, I'm sure off camera the president said, you know, I could have built a better memorial. Don't like the marble. <laughs> it's all There's, white. Where, where's the where's big the gold, gold L? <laughs> you know, amateur, amateur work this Lincoln. You know, you saw, by the way, that they had to, you know, the the Secretary of Interior had to give them special dispensation to shoot. No one is allowed to shoot inside the Lincoln Memorial. So, but that the rules don't apply here, as we know. Well, the rules haven't applied for a long time. Yeah, no, no, I'm sure they're steam cleaning it today anyway, but that (laughs) that is past. Did it mean anything? Did it change anything? Where do we think we are? I think we've all got virus fatigue, but science, you know, is uh, and biology doesn't really care about those emotions. But we are right. seeing the politics of this start to change a bit as people are starting, whether it's smart or not, we can debate uh, to go back to their lives in different parts of the country. Yeah, man, I, I think we're at, a, we're at an, a pivotal moment here, it seems to me, because there always was going to be this point where we did our jobs well enough that it looked like we had re- we were wrestling this thing into submission and when we did uh that you know people understandably are restive some of them are uh, many of them are desperate they've lost their jobs they're worried about their future they don't see a lot of visible evidence of this and now that is you know though the polling still shows people want to go slow there are loud voices out there and the president is abetting them. And it seems like we're at a hinge point because now we see these new estimates that if these states open up as suggested, what well, that death rate is going to start climbing again. And so, you know, as, as Fauci said last night, we have to decide how much death we're willing to accept. But what do you think about this political moment? What was amazing about that town hall that we're we're talking about in the shadow of Lincoln is, A, the fact that Lincoln actually didn't get up from his marble throne and just thwack uh, the president (laughs) across the head. But also, you know, there's this moment in it where he talks about the death count that the White House expects. And he revises the numbers up saying we could lose 75, 85, 100,000 people. And then he just says, but, you know, but I did such a good job that it could have been millions. And the disconnect between the information he's giving the American public, which is a body count of brothers and sisters and mothers and uncles and granddaughters that is going to be tens of thousands higher than we have been led to believe. And then this kind of casual dropping of millions as if they're like, car sales that we're talking about from overseas, his absolute emotional disconnect from death, which is what we're facing as a country, is staggering. That's the whole, that, that that's sort of like the, the crux of this moment, right? Yeah. Yeah. I just think, you know, he has done so many things so abysmally terribly in this moment, but managing expectations about what's going to happen next is, I think, chief among them. And when you talk about states opening back up, There's the death piece. There's the economy piece, which is driving these governors to do this and is driving the White House to advocate for the opening up of these state economies. The state economies, in the best case scenario, are going to be 50 percent of what they were. There are going to be massive job losses through the summer in the best case scenario. And in all likelihood, that hemorrhaging continues in a worse 
clip in the fall. So like the expectations here on every level are so wildly out of sync with the reality that we're walking or we're walking into. I think. Yeah, I, I think the defining thing on Trump is sociopath. Uh, so therefore, he doesn't have empathy. It's uh, almost a tragic thing, I think, for him. But putting, the, putting Trump aside, because it's been a no pun intended, a circus uh, of misinformation and craziness. But the pressure to reopen, particularly in parts of the country where there's less spread, uh, is not illegitimate. You know, an economic depression is massive pain, too. So this is one of these things where it's a tricky balance. And if we had enough testing, another Trump administration failure, it would be easier to ride the throttle. But here in California, where for once government really got something right, I'll tip my hat, you know, we've had tragedy here, too. But compared to our huge population, it's been small. Our hospitals have not been overwhelmed. Uh, Newsom, who I think has been very good on this, has started to slowly and carefully open the spigot. So I think it is not inappropriate in some areas to take those steps if you listen to your public health people. And and the good news is that Trump has a bully pulpit on this, but he doesn't have really very much control on opening the country. The the governors are driving it. And I think most people trust the Voinoviches or the Larry Hogan's or the Gavin Newsom's more. You mean Mike DeWine, man. You're having one of those things where your synapses uh, fire and you throw out names from the past. Not Voinovich, DeWine in Ohio. Oh, God, yeah. No, no. That's the first sign. I I might have caught something. Uh, You're right. But, yeah, of course, Governor Mike DeWine, who basically is Voinovich. They've never been seen in the same room together. Well, they, yeah. But yes, yes. I guess I just wonder, like, so, but even with this, this, the, the, the sort of careful, diligent reopening, the expectation that life is going to return to normal and that a large percentage of the American workforce is going to be back at it is is false. Like, yeah, that's no, just no, not going to happen. It, it Consumer is spending be isn't going to be what it was. Listen, listen, I think this is why Trump has, I think he is anticipating that there's going to be a lot of misery uh, in our economy from now till November. And he wants to be on the side of people who, who say, well, let's open this thing up so that he can point to those who, who didn't and say, you know, I was, I wanted to, I wanted to open this economy up and they would do it. I mean, I think that's clearly what's happened. He, you know, it's hard to give people difficult news and tell difficult truths and, you know, this is a process that has to be followed. I watched Fauci last night uh, on uh, with Chris Cuomo, who I'm happy to see was back at his desk after dealing with COVID-19 himself. And uh, Fauci, there was almost a mournful, you know, he's, he's irrepressible, but there was a bit of a mournful res- resignation to him when he said that thing about yeah, we have to decide how much death we, and basically what he was saying is, look, we got to get back. Everybody wants to get back, but there is a process here. And if we don't follow it, it's going to get worse and it's going to spike up again. But, and, and Cuomo said, well, you're losing that battle. And, and, and uh, Fauci said, yeah, I know I am. So that is the reality. But I think Trump, see, you know, he was going to run on the economy. Now he's running from the economy mm-hmm. and he wants to blame uh, those governors who have been assiduous about how they're, how they're handling this for being too slow in opening up the economy. I just I guess I wonder if Ron DeSantis follows in lockstep and Florida's completely open for business. I'd argue the economic impact they can't they still can't escape, right? So the the sort of finding your bogeyman yeah. it's going to be a fool's well, errand. I mean the, vi- the, the yeah, the the virus is it's the fault of the virus and you can't run a re-election campaign blaming 
something that at the, at the submolecular level, although I'm sure President Trump is going to try and do that. And I mean, and yeah, I would just say, David, like, how much death are we used to? Like, you could, Fauci's argument can be transposed to a lot of issues that divide Democrats and Republicans. Look, you could yes. say the same thing on climate change. How much death do you want to get used to? Because every degree you allow the earth to warm is more death. And one party has proven, I think, constitutionally uninterested in managing threats that are in the future, whether that's the near-term future or the longer medium-term future or whatever timeline you're working on. And that is absolutely what's happening right now. I actually think they they did they 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 actually say that it's constitutionally it's constitutionally proscribed. Go ahead, Murphy. No, I, I was gonna put on my oh somewhat tattered GOP hat because a lot of the stuff it's hard to defend when Trump has shattered our own principles. But you know, national bankruptcy was something we were always a bit more concerned about than the other party. I'm not so sure now. I'll tell you, I think some of these Republican governors and senators, though, and I, I agree that overall this thing is working against Trump as it should because of his incompetence and the Republican brand suffers, and it should because of its complicity. But some of these red state politicians do have a rock to hang on to because you got to remember, 3,200 counties, about 180 of them, the largest counties, provide the bulk of the Democratic vote. They're more urbanized. They have had a harder time with the virus so far. So if you're in Idaho or you're in Kansas, you're in somewhere that is a red state. Don't say South Dakota. Uh, well, it's not the clusters in or Perry, Iowa, where, you know, there's meatpacking. But fundamentally, you're in less biological pain right now. Uh, you're feeling a lot of economic yeah. pain of yeah, the shutdown. Yeah. And so your politics do reward a different management than the politics of Boston or New York City or Chicago, where you have mass transit. I mean, it's going to be very hard to open New York till there's a vaccine because of subway and mass transit. That That is not true in Wichita, Kansas. Uh, or Tulsa, Oklahoma. So some of these folks in red state world are responding, like all politicians do, to their politics. And it's different. So some of them, the back-to-work thing, I think, has a lot more, more um, what do I say, uh, uh, reality yeah. for them. Now, yeah. if, the, if, if they don't monitor it, and they they go too fast, and they do start to have more clusters, and they'll pay a price. So, yeah. you know, the the boogeyman's out there for them too. But it's it's a little different. Gallup, New Mexico is shut down right now. Exactly, third yeah, highest metropolitan. Yeah, they're in a situation to shut down the the Indian reservation. But New Mexico, by the way, has been a case study. She has done a tremendous job. It's one of the states that's had the most success. Yeah. Well, there are nursing homes in every state. And I think if you looked at the numbers, Trump's early approval numbers on this when they weren't going down, there was one sort of bit of data that was indicative, I think very telling. If you did not know someone who had suffered from COVID-19, you were more likely to approve of the president's handling of this. The more this touches people's families, the worse he does. And like I said, I mean, nursing home facilities exist in every county Probably. I don't know factually, but that, you know, the elderly, we all know someone who's old and they are particularly vulnerable to this. So it's anyone's guess. Trump has done what Trump does, which is, you know, and he has all his life. I mean, it's not just now. This has been his modus operandi. He tries to impose his reality, his kind of set of alternative facts on any situation, especially when they may be negative for him. The question is, can you do that in a situation where all of the country is experiencing the real reality on a daily basis? Post just had a poll out this morning, uh, Washington Post, 
uh, and his approval rating on his handling of the coronavirus uh, sits about where his overall approval has sat for most of his administration, 44%. Uh, Fauci's at 74. Your state's governor is at 75. Federal public health scientist, 71. President at 44. This mm-hmm. is a consequence of getting busted yep. for trying to tell a story that everybody knew wasn't true. And now I woke up this morning here in Arizona where he is arriving to uh, tour a factory where they're making protective equipment. And there's a, a new ad running because it's really interesting strategically to ask whether this is going to have an impact. Tough steps to defeat a tough virus. President Trump banned Chinese and European travel to the U.S. Biden charged xenophobia. But President Trump was right. His actions saved countless lives. Dispatching hospital ships, mercy and comfort. Mobilizing companies to make ventilators. Taking fast action on vaccines, treatments and tests. Not always polite. He does it his way, not the Washington way. But he gets it done. I'm Donald J. Trump and I approve this message. You know, I, I have to interject that, first of all, salute to my uh, podcast partner, David Axelrod, for managing to record that this morning. Uh, and I have this uh, troubling mental picture of you lunging across the room in your underwear with an iPhone held out to the TV speaker to capture it for our deserving audience. iPhone, that was on a reel-to-reel tape recorder, and <laughs> it was really hard to set up in that split second. I have to uh, it, tell it's you. amazing. It's amazing. So, uh, But, you know, the larger point is, the Trump, at least the campaign world, often detached from the the candidate, you know, who's in his own reality, as you say, is trying to bend the facts here by introducing the number one, you know, weapon of any campaign, new information to try to take the edge off it a little, which is why, you know, I, I think it's ludicrous on one level in Orwellian, but on the other level, I'd answer it if I were the Biden people. It makes yeah. a case. It takes the edge off a little. David, doesn't this remind you? I just remember in the early stages of the Obama administration, I'm not comparing these two responses. Let me just preface this by by saying that, right? That that so many people in the administration were so frustrated by the fact that it was like, but if we hadn't done what we did, it would have been so much worse. And it was like this truism that it's impossible to tell people, but it could have been worse. Because nobody understands, it's it's just not a particularly effective argument, right? Even though it may be true, or in Trump's case, well, we're not going to get into Trump's line of argument there, but that that's the nugget of that ad. Oh, it would have been so much. Well, worse. the other thing is that we arrived sort of at the peak of the crisis and it pretty quickly started to the numbers started to go down. It didn't help us in the short run, but the direction was was became clear over time. This thing is unpredictable and it looks like it could get worse. Exactly. And so, you know, he keeps, remember, this is the guy who tells us there were only going to be 15 cases. I think we're at like 1.2 million now and uh, close to 70,000 deaths. So he's been wrong at every juncture. People have heard that. As Mike points out, everybody has the tape of that. And one has to presume that the Biden campaign is going to deploy that tape to make to make the point here. So uh, yeah, it's very hard to make the case that it, it could have been worse, but it's even harder when it's getting worse. Right. Uh, and you and, and the person who's making the argument has been misleading people at every turn. But part of what Trump's trying to do here is give his 
people who, in my view, as I've said for two years, are not enough to win. He, he's never been in the growing his vote business, which is why I think he's favored to lose. But he's giving his people an argument, and he's taking what people already believe about him. Ah, oh, he's a tough asshole, and he's applying it to the virus. He may be a tough guy. You heard of the ad copy. He may not get along with anybody, but he's a man of action. He did this. He did that. He did the other thing. That gives him a limb to grasp on. So, yes. well, there's all the damning tape and everything. Haven't seen that ad yet. You know, haven't seen that action from the Biden people uh, or the IEs. I'm sure it's coming. Maybe it's in some places I'm not aware of. But that I think that's a good transition. I was reading the paper uh, the other day, the the commie paper of record, New York Times, and there was an op-ed from these yes. uh, two troublemakers in the Democratic Party telling Biden to get with it, kind of echoing the concern you hear in finance circles. I'm sure you're getting mm-hmm. a big candy gram from Biden headquarters, X, but why don't you talk about it in the argument, which I agree with. I think you guys were right. Not everybody was uh, was happy about it. Uh, Peace was a- actually assigned by the Times who wanted to know how you campaign in this kind of environment. Uh, and the piece flowed from there. But the, the, this juxtaposition that you're talking about, I think, is the, the main thing that Biden has to worry about strategically, which is the image of the president, however screwed up he is, however disingenuous, however misleading, however incompetent, um, he's out there. He looks like he's doing things. He's going to be seen in this factory today. And you have that juxtaposed with Joe Biden sitting in his basement who has no official role to play uh, and looks like the outside, you know, like he's he, he is sort of a sedentary, solitary figure. Uh, and that is a danger because the the message that the Trump campaign is hoping to push, they have to try and destroy Biden. You can't sit there at 43 percent approval and get reelected. They have to take Biden down. And the the one of the main attacks they've chosen is this, um, you know, uh, Sleepy Joe thing that he's not not up to it, that he doesn't have the energy, that he doesn't have the uh, in, uh, mental acuity anymore. And so they need to use the modern accoutrements of communication to push back on all that. First of all, they've got to push back quickly on stuff like this, positive and negative. They've got to react quickly. Secondly, they've got to find ways to present Biden in uh, in, in in a more active way uh, or they'll fall subject to that kind of a, a caricature. Biden should win this race. Mm-hmm. OK, but we are a deeply divided country, deeply divided country. And if you look at the polling, he's ahead in the battleground states right now, but not by all that much. And, you know, it is striking that Donald Trump, after all of this, is still sitting there with a 43 yeah. percent approval rating. So I, I just think you have to, you know, you you know this, Mike, you, you've been involved in these. You don't back into you don't back into the presidency. You got to fight. Right. And with Donald Trump, man, you this guy, whatever else you say about him, he will never give up. And there's nothing he will not do to try and win this election. I totally agree. Trump is drowning politically. But in politics, we all know that that means you immediately find the biggest, ugliest fire hose you can and apply more water. 
you never get passive because Trump, like most insect life, will fight to the very, very end. And as you say, he will do anything. So if you're in the Biden world, you're in a weird mix of risk control because you don't want to do anything to change the subject to you. And you want to double down on Trump. So one thing you never let him do is get any offense going, whether it's an ad in Arizona saying all the things he did that his world and a few people, you know, outside that may believe. And second, you keep him back on his heels with a guy as insecure as Trump. That's not that hard to do, but you need a coordinated offense. And they uh, I, I've been a little lenient on him on the theory they have time to rally and go forth. But it's now time to rally and go voting forth. begins in some states yeah. in 150 days. So exactly. it's not that much time. I just want to say. I think that Jen O'Malley Dillon, who's his new campaign manager, is one of the best I've I've ever worked with. She is really, really good. She, as we said in the piece, is, is recruiting really good people. Um, and it's a question of how the candidate and his coterie around him adapt to um, what needs to be done here. But um, uh, but you can't you you can't sort of sit back. I've ha- I had people write me in response to the op-ed saying. Uh, he should just run out the clock. Risky. You don't win the presidency by running out the clock, even under these circumstances, and and certainly not with a candidate like Donald Trump, who may not be good at governing, may have no empathy, may be may be uh, corrupt, uh, but uh, is indefatigable when it comes to pursuing his own interests. Let me chime in really quickly, and then Alex, I want to hear from you. I'll just say the meanest possible thing here, and it's hard for me because I have <laughs> friends in the Biden world, and I like Biden. I'm not ideologically where he is, but I'm I like him, and you know I've said before against Trump, he'll be the first presidential Democrat I think I've ever voted for. But Biden is in some ways the proverbial turtle on the fence post. He got beat in Iowa, he got beat in New Hampshire, and then the African American vote in its passion and loyalty of South Carolina, reflecting Biden's long record and his association with Barack Obama, lifted him up and put him where he is today. He hasn't put himself very many places. So it is important to all those inside the Biden world, from his sister who's very involved in the campaign on down, to love him enough to realize that and realize that they didn't get where they are through campaign action. Yes, amen. And if they want to be president of the United States, and they, they carry that holy cause now, they got to up the game. And they've just got to be open-minded, not insular about that, uh, to, to serve the moment in history that he has. I cannot agree with you enough, Mike Murphy, and I don't think of myself as the meanest person in the room. I will tell you. <laughs> I'm not I, either, but it's true. Yeah. Well, maybe in this room. Come on. But okay. anyway, in this room with you, yeah, with you sob sister liberals, you're right. Listen to, listen to this. I spent a lot of time on the campaign trail with Joe Biden before COVID-19, and his campaign events were terrible. He is a good retail politician one-on-one. You know yeah. this, David. You've talked about this yeah. in your op-ed. It's absolutely true that he can, his empathy and his ability to communicate with a person are in a class by themselves, but on yes. the stump as a public speaker, as someone who has fire in his belly, it is not there. The campaign events were pretty awful. 
And the reason Joe Biden exists as our candidate is, yes, of course, due to African-American support, but also because we Americans collectively feel like we know Joe Biden and we have made Democrats a decision Democrats have made that he is the guy that can beat Donald Trump. And so Joe Biden needs to do whatever he can to keep that idea alive and convincing. And I think you're right, David. I think that surrogates are a huge part of this. He needs to get Warren. He needs to get Barack and Michelle. He needs to get every important Democrat who has endorsed him out there doing incredible viral videos. He needs to start seeding the landscape and get Americans, Democrats, young progressives to envision what a Biden cabinet would look like to give them a sense that the Biden White House is not just Joe Biden. Joe Biden can go march up to the hill with a turkey sandwich to make peace with Republicans every third Thursday, and that can be primarily what he does. But the hard work, the machinery of his administration will be run by some very able captains with new spirit and and presumably hotter fire in their bellies. I mean, I, that is imperative work, I think, right now. Alex, you know, one thing that is striking to me just looking at uh, data is people don't really know Joe Biden as well yeah, as we exactly. think they should. Mm. He's been around for a really long time, but he hasn't been the featured player and they don't know him that well. And uh, so part of the mission here is for those surrogates also and other, you know, and, and their production studio over there to be pumping out material to let people know uh, who who Biden is and what his story is. And, and you know, I said at the beginning of that piece, we said at the beginning of that piece that, you know, these qualities of empathy and experience uh, are actually exactly what the country needs mm-hmm. and wants right now. But you need to tell people uh, those stories. They're beginning to now, according to the, uh, the Times, they're going to begin emphasizing his role in the Recovery Act. I was there. It was genuinely important. He he was handed the portfolio uh, and he managed the Recovery Act uh, pretty much flawlessly. $787 billion went out the door pretty quickly. Um, he understands the levers of power and how to use them. And, um, you know, that's a story that that they should be telling. But everything needs to be take. Uh, there needs to be a faster pace to all of it, and they need to use all the tools available to them. I have no doubt, Jen O'Malley, Dylan knows that, and she's trying to retrofit a campaign that, as you guys both know, wasn't very good. Yeah. Can I just point out one? Like, I, I just want to recall this tweet from the 2020 campaign, which I still think. If you're talking about, Mike, you were talking about this president being thin-skinned and deeply insecure. I found this to be, this is the model, I think, for the Biden tweets. Mike Bloomberg in, uh, what month was this? This was in uh, February of this year. At Real Donald Trump, we know many of the same people in New York. Behind your back, they laugh at you and call you a carnival barking clown. They know you inherited a fortune and squandered it with stupid deals and incompetence. I have the record and the resources to defeat you, and I will. Do you guys remember that tweet? Yeah. I do. And no, it's good. It, it, it goes back to the joke that you made your money the old-fashioned way. You inherited it, a gridiron dinner that set Trump into a rage spiral that you know, might have even led to this, uh, the campaign and this calamity. I, look, I totally agree. And I like that Biden is pivoting to the economy. I was involved in the writing of that. I, I, I'd hate to believe that. But 
Um, <laughs> but I, I'm worried. I wouldn't bet all the chips on the economic recovery thing. Uh, that, you know, shovel ready. That's a Republican code word for fiasco. And we can debate the reality. It's just this is politics. It's perception. So I think Biden, Biden is known as one thing, an old politician. And he has those qualities you alluded to, X, and they're gold in this election if they can get them out. So I agree with you. But he needs a great economic surrogate team of real people, not old Democratic politicians or or Mm left-wing activists, uh, to convince the country. I mean, we did this with Schwarzenegger. We were inheriting a recession here in the recall, and we knew that nobody thought Arnold would get out the macroeconomic textbooks and figure it out. Uh, (laughs) So we surrounded him with Warren Buffett and others to have this A-team of policy depth to try to move their credibility to him. And Biden should be doing the same thing because in the polling, the only thing Trump has uh, on issues is, you know, running the economy. If they break that, there's nothing left for Trump. So I like that they're moving into the space, but a backwards argument about in 2007, you know, I made sure this, the Repubs are always going to have the, uh, the cancer and geese or whatever the old examples were. And we're going to relitigate that thing, which, you know, it, it, it's the right category, the economy and how to spend a stimulus. But I, I think they're going to have to ramp that up a lot to score like they can and and really zip up the election. Yeah, I kind of think they have to do both. I think you need the biography as a foundation. And I think that you, you need to do what you're suggesting as well. Uh, but I just all my main my main point is there are a lot of there are a lot of blanks that need to be filled in here just to continue to give people comfort to do what they're going to do. Alex, uh, let me ask you a question. We talked about the Tara Reid thing here last Mm -hmm. week before all hell broke loose and said that Biden needed to address it uh, and should have addressed it earlier. He did address it on Friday. I think we actually have a bite of that. Did you sexually assault Tara Reid? No, it is not true. I'm saying unequivocally, it never, never happened. And it didn't. It never happened. So, Alex, did he do enough? Is this what what is the status of this? Is this likely to hang over him or um, was his denial definitive enough? I don't think it was definitive enough. I mean, you have the New York Times editorial board calling for for a full investigation. You have people writing in papers of record that he should step down as the nominee. That is not that does not signal the end of a crisis. Um, You know, I think they've got to work out what his position is on why the archives at the University of Delaware shouldn't be opened up, because right now that line of argument seems questionable and is going to be an opening for his enemies to exploit and for people who are genuinely curious about what happened. And I think, you know, this is all being debated and discussed in the context of of Biden saying he's going to pick a female running mate. And I think, you know, talking to women both inside politics and just women voters, there is a huge sense of frustration and anger and really raw hurt among women in this country that with such a diverse cast of women to choose from, the Democrats have gone with a septuagenarian, you know, white guy. And now here we have sexual harassment allegations. And now he's going to say, I'm I'm picking a woman. And, and this feeling that women have, I think, in some corners that like, why, why are we the ones that are taken less seriously and also asked to clean up the mess? Um, And I think they've got to do a very careful balancing act between, you know, not making it look like, as Rebecca Traster says, this vice presidential pick is forced to drink from a poisoned chalice where she becomes the sort of excuse maker for Biden's, you know, questionable behavior, if we're going to call it that. And that and that Biden, you know, takes seriously the I think they are taking seriously the moment. Right. Like, I I think that they, they need to be. 
I think there needs to be um, a, a clearer signal that they want daylight on all parts of this. And I think that that honestly probably involves opening up every record that there is that could disprove what she is alleging. Let me be a Biden surrogate here, a new, a new job. But when you want a job done right, call a Republican. <laughs> Let me take the other side of or the argument. Or away Republican. <laughs> it, I, as a campaign person, have learned long ago that somebody casting a grumpy vote for you cast every bit as much as somebody casting in a static vote for you. Do you think many of those women are going to stay home or vote for Donald J. Trump rather than Joe Biden if his answer doesn't improve? I do not. Well, Murphy, I know it's all a zero-sum game about who's in the White House, but I think when you're talking about the fabric of, you know, American society, having a nominee in there who doesn't make women feel like shit was probably a good idea, even if they pull the lever for him, right? There there has to be a better way for half of this country that we don't just have to say, okay, maybe he did some like messed up stuff with this woman, but it wasn't as bad, but we're going to just, he's no Trump, so I'm going to say yes. We have to advance the ball down the Yeah, field. but I this think is- a, a Joe Partisan would say, you know, that he answered it. He denied it strongly. The corroborating evidence is really weak, and I think I think he did okay for, with his toolbox. And what the story needs now to be bad for Biden in a major campaign-shaking way, I think, is for her to emerge and be strong and sympathetic. Instead, she's kind of wilted, canceled the Chris Wallace interview, doesn't seem to want to appear. I think he's kind of hit the mother load on this, that this thing is going down to third-string problem uh, because he's denied it and there hasn't really been a counter case. So you've got to be careful about opening up the world because the media will look for the time he spilled the coffee on Mother Teresa and made a joke about, ah, she moved a little slow dodging it, the old bat. You know, and then boom, the campaign's about Biden, not about Trump. So I, I, there's risk in all this. Was that Mother Teresa thing an actual thing? Do you know that? Hap- anyway, go ahead, Alex. I'm sorry. No, no, I, I, I don't. I, I think don't. we should be careful about saying she's completely uncredible. I mean, there is, ev- and I'm not trying to make the case for Tara Reid by any stretch of the imagination, but... You know, like there are there was a Larry King call. There are these conversations she had with neighbors and friends in the 90s. Like it's no it's not Christine Blasey Ford. I don't think these are not sworn affidavits. This is not Democrats calling merely for an investigation. This is something else. But I do think there is, you know, I I, and I don't necessarily know that this is I don't think it is a defining moment for it is not going to be something that people vote on in November. But I do think it is something that matters in terms of how it is handled and what it says about how Democrats handle situations and allegations like these. And it matters also because there is going to be a woman on that ticket and she is going to get asked about this. Yeah, well, I think the biggest thing, if you look at polling and there was another morning consult poll out yesterday, I hear I hear it from a lot of young people and particularly the Bernie uh, young people have this has been festering this story and it continues uh, to do that. I agree with Mike. I think that um, the combination of what he did and what she didn't do, which was to appear publicly and talk about this, probably has doused it uh, a little bit as a general issue. It's still on the on on in social media, still circulating around. And, you know, it's it's one it's a tough it's a tough thing because it's, uh, you know, you have two people, one says it happened, one says it didn't happen. And ultimately it's hard. It's, it, it's a very hard situation for, for, for him and for her. Uh, but I, I will say this, I wrote a, another piece this week, uh, about, um, the, uh, my experience in the Obama vice presidential vet. And, um, you know, 
we had 30 or so candidates. And when it came down to the final batch, the, the vetting was intense. And some people fell away because of things that these vetters discovered. And they were looking at every aspect of their lives. This never, nothing, not, not just Tara Reid, but no story like this uh, related to Biden ever came up in that vet. And um, I don't know, you know, that's not dispositive. Uh, but generally there are patterns of behavior and there are rumors about people that you would hear and pick up. And that wasn't the case with him. So, you know, I do have to, I do think that you have to lay that aside, everything else here. But uh, as far as the University of Delaware records go and the Times wanted him to open up the University of Delaware records, he could do that. And Mike, at one point you suggested to me that he, he should do that and designate Mm -hmm. some people to look at those, the, the relative relevant years to see if there's anything there. You know, my thought on that is uh, there probably isn't anything there uh, because he says there's not, and he's right. Personnel records probably don't uh, appear in there. But if there is nothing there, as he says, what's to stop people who believe this from saying, well, obviously they removed the records. I mean, there's no bottom to this thing. There's no no, bottom to this thing. There isn't. I mean, my thought was tactically, if she had appeared and been stronger, uh, and the records thing is hanging out there. The step for the campaign is to get him out of the records thing and appoint a, a credible group led by Frank and Killer, you know, G- Senator Gillibrand or some others who has endorsed him. But I think you could have a credible group kind of supervise that to go put it over an escrow. But it's a bottomless pit. And when Biden is debating this stuff, he is not debating fire Donald Trump. The whole election is about can Trump change the channel. And with all due respect to the 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 passion among democratic women about all this the you know the cold hard mathematical fact beyond the zero sum point about you got to be trump is if the democratic primary electorate which was majority female really really thought the most important attribute of the democratic candidate was gender they would have nominated one they had plenty of candidates to pick from amy or kamala and in the end it was Old Joe, who may be everybody's second or third choice, but he got nominated and he's not Trump. So now it's a tough political battle of, of beating Trump. So it, you never get perfection. And I think the Biden campaign is right to be careful about some of this stuff because they don't want the election to become about something else. And I thought he gave enough of an answer that he's in pretty good shape on this right now and a, and a life story of, of that's defensible. Let's not ignore the um, the elephant in the room, which is that this is not a very potent line of attack for Trump because of his own history, which is, right. you know, I mean, like he doesn't need to step in this any more than I mean, he, he certainly wants to avoid this as a, as a channel Maybe. changer. You know, I, I don't know. I think their attitude is, well, this is baked in the cake. Right. Everybody right. knows can't be worse. these stories about Donald Trump. But if I can drag Biden into this. And 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 make him play on the same tabloid field on which I live. That's a that's a that's okay for me. So uh, and I you know I think they're I think they're stoking it up uh, in social media even as he is not stoking it up uh, in 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 person. So you're right that you know logic would say well he's not a very credible alternative if that is your prosecutor. Concern. Yeah. But I mean, I think his goal is to just drag Biden down in every way, in every way that he can. I mean, we'll 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 see how this evolves. I do think it feels different to me today than it did a week ago, um, because yeah. of subsequent events. But I agree with Alex; it's it's not it's not over, and it it hasn't. 
It's definitely not over. It just feels like it's evolved a little. But look, we should talk about the Republican brand problem that might have put the Senate in play. But first, we have to respect the gods of commerce and get a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back with Hags on Tap. You know, Gibbs, every once in a while uh, on Twitter, people will write in and say, Axe, you make me nauseous. But nausea is nothing to joke about. It's like getting stuck in the back of a car and you're kind of a little bit hemmed in and you just you get that feeling and it starts in your stomach. It's not. Yeah. A good and, you, and, and like you're on your way to something good, a, a celebration or party or something. And now you're nauseous and you can't get rid of it, except there is an answer now. And it's called Relief Band. Tell us about Relief Band. Relief Band is the number one FDA cleared anti-nausea wristband that has been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting associated with motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, hangovers, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. The product is 100% drug-free, non-drowsy, and provides all natural relief with zero side effects. Zero. For as long as needed, the technology was originally developed over 20 years ago in hospitals to relieve nausea from patients. But now through Relief Band, it's available to all of us. Here's how it works with Relief Band. It stimulates a nerve in the wrist that travels to the part of the brain that controls nausea. Then it blocks the signal your brain is sending to your stomach telling you that you're sick. Relief Band is the only over-the-counter wearable device that has been used in hospitals and oncology clinics to treat nausea and vomiting. If you know somebody who deals with nausea, Relief Band makes a great gift. I'm telling you, Relief Band works. We know from our own experience, we sent one to our engineer who often gets nauseous during our shows, and he reports 100% cure. Don't fall for those cheap bands you see in drugstores or on your Instagram feed. All right. Right now, Relief Band has an exclusive offer just for our Hacks listeners. If you go to ReliefBand.com and use promo code HACKS, you'll receive 20% off plus free shipping and a no questions asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So head to ReliefBand, R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D, Dot com and use our promo code HACKS for 20% off plus free shipping. Okay, we're back. X, you have something you want to say? I woke up this morning to the story by uh, uh, Caitlin Collins, a great White House reporter for CNN, about... Uh, about Barr going into the president and trying to persuade mm-hmm. him to stand down on the ACA suit. I mean, they're joined with the states who want to uh, who want to vacate the Affordable Care Act, and the Supreme Court is supposed to be hearing this case in the fall. Barr, I think, made uh, the right political argument, which is this is a disaster for you, and coronavirus makes it an even bigger disaster for you. Now, what he didn't say is let's forget about it forever. But he said, let's not argue this in the fall. I think he's right about this. And I don't often say that about the attorney general, but as a, <laughs> you, you don't know, have a shrine to him in, in your house with candles. What? He's a, he's a, he may be a better political strategist than, uh, than he is an honest, uh, forthright attorney general. But I mean, I got to think this is right. And it'll be interesting to see if the ideologues within the campaign and, and Trump world are so, uh, wedded to this idea that they can't make an adjustment here. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, this is Freedom Caucus versus the Pragmatists. I, look, we both know that we all know that jumping in healthcare politics is a dangerous place. It's like jumping into a swimming pool full of razor blades. If you are changing a system, you know, it's very easy to, to marshal opposition, whether or not originally the Republicans, oh, scary Hillary care, scary Obamacare, all these problems works politically. Then Republicans in 2018, we were allegedly going to take away uh, pre-existing conditions and we got slaughtered. So the smarter politicians around Trump see this thing leading down that awful path. Uh, and I, I couldn't agree more with Barr. We'll see what happens. That leads to the Senate races, too where everybody thought in Republican CW world, well, always wrong, but that, oh, we're going to glide. We got good states, can't lose. Joni Ernst is invincible. Then there was a bad Ernst poll maybe seven months ago that people just kind of ignored. I don't think they did internally in the Ernst campaign. Uh, and now, even though it's a PPP poll, which is a group of bit of a Democratic tilt on it, uh, it's clear that that race is not a cakewalk and neither are others. What, what are both your takes yeah. on the Senate? I think it's in play. Very much so. And if you talk to people inside the Biden campaign, they are, I mean, I think that people are pegging this as maybe a 50-50 split, which is Mm -hmm. way different than I, you know, would have imagined even two months ago, you know, like Lindsey Graham's race being likely Republican instead of solidly Republican is an interesting data point. Susan Collins, I think, is in really big trouble. Yeah. There's some interesting dynamic. And, you know, a lot of this is going to depend on how these states are faring in the fall, which is a huge open question. It's insane to make predictions six months out. But if the election were today, I think Democrats would take over the Senate. You you look at Colorado, Arizona, North Carolina, Maine. And now, you know, we mentioned uh, Joni Ernst, lots of angst for Ernst. I just wanted to say that. And uh, out of Montana today, there's a poll that shows uh, Steve Bullock, the incumbent Mm -hmm. governor, who, by the way, is getting enormous amounts of attention uh, because he's handling the coronavirus, uh, is ahead of the incumbent. He's also a guest on our next episode of Six Feet Apart, talking about how he's handled the coronavirus. Uh Oh, now he's doomed. (laughs) That's very good. Yeah, now he's totally. I want to say that was not prearranged. I had no idea. But he is in the he's he's uh, leading by six or seven points uh, in Montana. I think that the Republicans are in deep trouble uh, in the Senate, and that's going to make them they're 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 uh, in a position where they have to cling to Trump. uh, But Trump may take them down uh, in the fall. And the only way Joni Ernst survives is if Trump rallies in Iowa. And uh, we'll see if he can Which do that. He he might in a closer race. Iowa is one of those states that Trump can lose the presidential race, but she can squeak to a win. But that still that may not mean control. Her it's, approval uh, rating, Mike, is uh, I think seven points or something lower than his. Yeah, no, no. I, I get. I mean, again, the PPP poll I discount a little, but I know private polling there, which is not a bed of roses either. Um, I think it's totally possible. My my point is if if Trump gets to a tighter losing race, the Iowa's of the world generically could come a little closer than an Arizona or somewhere like that. All right, let's take a minute to hear from one of our esteemed sponsors. I bet you don't have that over at uh, yeah. Cricket Media. No, we don't have a Wayback Machine that sends us into 1986. Those are <laughs> classic jingles left over from Radio Free GOP. You can still hear on iTunes a bunch of those old things from my old podcast. 
that might come back for an Election Eve special for a couple episodes. But anyway, enough jingles. Let's get to the questions. So, Murphy, a listener named Robert wrote, listening to your program from the last week of April with John Heilman, Alex's trusty sidekick, Murphy (laughs) said something that I want to pursue. Let's assume Trump loses but plays the spoiler and then hangs around on Twitter or cable shows. You can bet on that if he loses. My question is, what happens to the Republican Party? We need a strong and principled Republican Party. And I say that as a Democrat. That is a great question. And the truth is, not sure I know. I can... I can make a guess. I think what I can make a guess. I think if Trump is defeated, there will be a pugent stench of a large orange rotting carp all over the Republican Party. Uh, <laughs> so because others will lose, including probably the U.S. Senate. So we'll be sitting in the minority uh, fending off two and a half way socialism, depending on where Biden leads. So we have a very grumpy bunch of Republicans and Trump will get a lot of blame. Now, Trump will immediately go to media platforms and try to yes. take over the party, announce his nitwit son is running. I mean, he'll he'll have a plan, so he will be a voice out there. Now, I think a lot of the questions might be, how are your legal troubles, Mr. President, because the Southern District of New York has plans for him once he's out of office. So I tend to be short this. I think there will be some Trump imitators. I think the vile, cheap applause populism that Trump has brought to the party will have agents of uh, agents expressing it, and it will attract some votes. But I think Trump, the ex-king, will be a lot weaker than the king. So I tend to be, I'm pretty short Trump afterward, and I don't think he'll be nearly as powerful as people presume, but I'm totally capable of being wrong on this one. We will wait and see. He has a knack for getting attention. Or delusional because you want it to be that way. Well, of course, that's your malady, and I too suffer it. But uh, <laughs> um, I, 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 I think big Trump's brand is winner. If Trump is America's biggest orangest loser, I think there's a paradigm shift for him. No, 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 no. He will not be a loser, Mike. There are only two outcomes as far as Donald Trump is concerned. One is that uh, he wins, and the other is that the election is illegitimate and it was stolen from him. There's not going to be any losing for Donald Trump. No, he won't But I'll tell you something. I don't know if you guys saw saw the story. Alex, you're a media maven about Donald Trump maybe being involved with a group that's trying to buy that OANN you know that, that one American that news they, network. Yeah, Super Fox. Yes, that they have they have elevated to uh, White House press corps status. They get a question or two at every press conference now. It is the and and the notion is that this is this is his way station when this is over or his home, and he's going to try and take Fox out. I don't know. It's going to be a problem for the next president because he's not going. He's going to be on Biden's ass if Biden's the president every step of the way. Well, and let's just be clear, Joe Biden, and I'm working on a piece for The Atlantic about this, is about if he wins to walk into maybe the worst job in America in its history, like economic fallout, a deeply Mm -hmm. divided country that doesn't trust basic facts, at least one side in particular does not trust the institutions that bring and report facts to us. I mean, he has got a steep hill to climb and Donald Trump loves nothing more than heckling people from the sidelines and saying, I would have done it better or in fact, I did do it better. And if he has O-A-N-N to give him the mic, I would expect that he will use it. Murphy, you have a question for Alex. We do from Jake. 
Jake says, my question is on Biden's VP search. It seems odd to mention governors as possible VP candidates, given that one, and we got, Jake is very logical here. I like this. One, governors are responsible for managing the coronavirus outbreak in their state. And two, the coronavirus outbreak is likely to continue and possibly get worse into the fall. Wouldn't it be irresponsible for a governor to leave his or her post during a pandemic to pursue national office? What am I missing? You're not missing anything. I think that's a great point. I mean, I was interviewing Steve Bullock, the governor of Montana, who is also going to be campaigning for the Senate in the fall. And the governor is not talking about the Senate race at all. And I think that's entirely logical. That's necessary. But it's, you know, it's it's a bind if Biden is looking towards governors for his running mate, because as we talked about before, his 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 VP pick is going to have to do a lot of work for the campaign, probably more than your even more than your average VP, because Biden himself is sidelined. He has his own campaigning concerns. And, uh, you know, this person a lot rests on her shoulders. So. Yeah, I think it's highly problematic to pick a governor at this juncture. I'm not I mean, I don't know. We can all play the veep stakes rakes. You know, Gretchen Whitmer is always talked about. But I, I, I would wonder how seriously a governor is really actually in the mix right now. Governors have a lot of advantages, though. Uh, traditionally, you get a little escape from the Washington Senate chatterbox world where Biden is already a ninth degree black belt. So I'm still for a governor. I think this is more of a speed bump than a fatal flaw. But, you know, we'll see if he picks a governor. We'll see how it plays out. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right, on, especially because this governor, there's going to be a lot of scrutiny on governors as potential executives. Um, and uh, so this is going to be important. Um, the the counter argument is there are advantages to people who have actually experienced a national campaign. And so some of the opponents may bump up on Biden's list as a result of that. Alex, I think you have one for me. I do. I have one from you, for you, maybe from you, because it's from someone named David, I'm assuming. And this is not your <laughs> strange alter ego. That we'll, let people, some... we'll leave people to wonder. <laughs> Will Justin Amash's third party bid have an impact on the race? And do you think it would hurt Trump or Biden more? You know, it's a really interesting question. Obviously, he's not a pro-Trump person. There is a uh, there's an uh, a uh, an argument that if he were to do this, that he would provide an outlet for Republicans who don't want to vote for Biden and don't want to vote for Trump. My view is this: Donald Trump has a, a low ceiling, and anything that gives voters another option probably helps him because he needs to reduce the percentage of votes you need to carry a state. Uh, and having a Amash in there, it seems to me, is not helpful because if people uh, are going to turn uh, away from Donald Trump, you want them to turn to uh, Biden. And Biden, uh, if I were Biden, I wouldn't be enthused at this. I'd just point back to 2016, and I believe that the third-party candidacies, the independent candidacy, the uh, I'm sorry, the libertarian candidacy, which Amash is running for, the Green Party candidacy, I think that had a lot to do with the slim margins of defeat for Hillary Clinton in some of those key battleground states. So I would not be excited about this if I were uh, Biden. And it should be noted that Trump uh, thought it was a grand idea that Amash go and run for president. And he's, you know, about as subtle as a fart in a spacesuit. So I think he you can pretty much assume that he thinks it's a, a good thing for him. You know, I'm of split minds on this because the conventional wisdom is often that, well, you now have two tr 
two candidates splitting the anti-Trump vote. So therefore, it's good for Trump. And and that it, that was kind of the story with Perot and Bush. And I mean, I, I, you can argue it both ways. That's kind of where my instinct is. But if you just shoot this down to a microanalysis, because I think in the end, he won't sway that much. And I think part of his appeal, maybe to disaffected Republicans, will be driven by something we don't know yet, which is will Biden pick a running mate in a mile cap? Uh, and scare the suburbs, and maybe some repubs will see an out to go for Justin Amash. But I'll tell you the one micropolitics thing that I'm pretty certain of. In West Michigan, in that Grand Rapids district that Amash kept, he'll pull votes off Trump because uh, he has roots in the community. He's well-liked there, and he'll take some votes, a couple thousand at least, right out of Donald Trump, which could be enough in a close race to tilt Michigan, yeah. which could tilt the yeah. Electoral College. That's a really good point. So it, really in the small point. ball, it definitely hurts Trump in West Michigan. In the rest yeah. of the country, it may be irrelevant or it maybe could help Trump a little. Depends on also whether Justin Amash can actually do any campaigning, right? That's like the open question of the fall. Oh, like, in the Repub West Michigan world, he will. Well, right. In West Michigan, I, 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 I no doubt you're right. But in a national landscape, when you are confined to your house and your local areas, I mean, who knows? It could, but it could be that Justin Amash's name reads to people who walk in the booth or some people as none of the above. Mm. And, you know, that is the that that is the danger uh, uh, for for Biden, I think. But uh, but you make uh, good points, Murphy. Listen, we have time for one really quick last call. And I, I want to I think I can speak for all of us on this. Uh, Jeff, you want to hit the last call thing for Alex's entertainment? Last call. <laughs> OK. We're, listen, I'm telling you, man, we are as contemporary as can be here. Anyway, um, I, I, we were just talking before uh, we started, and I really, uh, I really wanted to say it to all our friends out there who are listening. This is a time to count your blessings. We are blessed. We are sitting in various places. Mike is in L.A. Alex is in New York. I'm in Arizona. But we're safe, and we're able to do this show from home. And there are people who, many of whom may appear on Alex's podcast, uh, who are uh, working every day. And we've really discovered, you know, we, we, we used to think that the bankers and uh, captains of industry were our essential people. We know who the essential people are now. They're the people who are going out every day in, at some risk to themselves to do the things that we need to do to help save lives. Uh, and uh, all of us should be enormously uh, grateful for all of them. And, um, you know, I, I just want to keep everyone in in our country, and particularly those who are most exposed by the things that they do for us uh, in our thoughts and our prayers. I would agree. I would concur. And I would say it has been amazing to me. I knew in my heart it would be true, but it is heartwarming to see it that Beyond our heroic first responders, I mean, I have a friend who's an emergency room doc who's living it every day, uh, the nurses, all the people on the front lines. There have been so many ordinary Americans from UAW workers working 14 hours and management in those plants at Ford to turn out a million face masks to the pharmaceutical researchers around the world who are working round the clock at breakneck speed. I mean, pharma is an industry that gets bashed a lot to the volunteers who are taking food like some in our neighborhood, including my wife, to some elderly couples. So, you know, so many people have stepped up during this, which has reminded us in a, in a grim time and as tragic, it's always in the grim times uh, about how strong our community of Americans is. So salute to everybody who's uh, who's part of dealing with this, and and great thanks. 
I just want to say, like, out here on Long Island, every uh, Sunday they sound the air sirens and people run outside and bang pots and say thank you. But they also test the air sirens throughout the day. My toddler doesn't know that that's not a signal to run outside and thank people. (laughs) So, like, multiple times a day he runs outside and yells, thank you, doctors, thank you, nurses. And we never stop him because it's like... It's so wonderful in this terrible time that that's become part of his sort of natural behavioral DNA is to just thank the people that are on the front lines multiple times a day to nobody in particular. Alex Wagner, you are a delight. It is a pleasure to be with you always. Thank Uh, you, my friends. Everybody should watch the circus when it resumes and should listen to Six Feet Apart, uh, Alex's new uh, podcast. And we hope to uh, see you again soon. Thanks, guys. And remember... Wash your hands. All right. Okay, guys. Talk to you next week, Murphy. See you, pal. See you, Alex. Bye. Bye.